So we're on part two this morning of Paul's apologetic from chapter 22, verse 1 through 29, where Paul is making the first of what will turn out to be six defenses of the faith, a defense that God has already prearranged would take place, uh, first with the crowd that sought to kill him, saved and spared, of course, by the Roman army, that too providential, that uh, Claudius Lysias, the Roman tribune, was drawn his attention to the riot that was taking place uh, down below and dispatched a garrison of soldiers, a group of soldiers to go down and quell the mob and try to figure out what has happened and what the fight is all about, what the conflict is about, and not able to ascertain any reasonable understanding of who they're trying to uh, dispatch, who they're trying to kill in the Apostle Paul, and uh, not being able to adjudicate any of the problems that have caused this conflict to arise, they decide to chain the Apostle Paul and to carry him away to the Antonia Fortress, where they, the Roman garrison is housed, which is above. They can see they have steps that lead right down in. And Paul, of course, has asked permission now by the tribune to speak to the crowd. So there are are a couple of very important key elements to remember as we continue to work through these defenses, and that is, uh, first of all, that uh, doctrinally, this is a survey of the sovereignty of God. If we miss that, we've missed a lot, but not only have we missed a lot, but we've done God a disservice, not to recognize his divine orchestration of all of these things for his glory and the proliferation of his son's gospel. So that's doctrinally. Practically, we want to pick apart this defense that Paul makes. As we finish out the book of Acts and we look at the rest of his defenses, indeed, we want to see the strategy that he uses given the audience that he's appealing to. So in this case, he's appealing to his fellow Jews. Some are completed Jews, those Jews who have recognized Christ as Messiah but are still offended because they practice the Jewish laws but they recognize Christ as their Savior, and those Jews who have not. The Asian Jews are the ones who have started the ruckus, the Jews that knew Paul when he was over in, the, in Asia Minor area on the eastern side of the Aegean Sea there, as he was planting the gospel in the synagogues or seeking to, and in other places at Ephesus and through the Lycus Valley, Laodicea and Hierapolis and uh, Colossae, those areas there. And the Jews would <clears throat> simply follow him around and try to disprove his uh, statements of Christ, his gospel. And so Paul understands what he has for a crowd. Mainly, obviously, primarily, nearly 100% have Jewish background at least. Some completed, some not. And so, in any case, they've all been able to be stirred up. They're stirred up and now Paul is the apostle who will remain on this earth, the apostle in chains. He's no longer free to roam around as he had on his three missionary journeys. He now will remain in chains in three different cities now in Jerusalem, making his case 
and then he'll be moved on after he appeals to the council, which is the Sanhedrin, which is where we'll go next in chapter 23. He makes another defense to the Sanhedrin, which has its own interesting characteristics of those things that he leaves in and those things he leaves out. There are those differences already with his conversion account that we find in Acts chapter 9 over against what he includes in his retelling here in this passage. And then he moves on from Caesarea, of course, after making a defense to Governor Felix and then Governor Festus, and after that, King Agrippa. He's moved on to Rome, and he'll make his final defense to the Jews there. So this morning, we had looked at, of course, the, uh, the first of five parts as I've broken this this chapter down, this defense that he makes down, which is essentially the entire chapter. Yeah, we had Paul's credentials last time, verse 1 to 5. And in each one of these points, I want us to be cognizant. I want us to be consciously aware of the sovereignty of God. And so there is a little byline to each where we see, saw last week the God who sovereignly creates. He created Paul before he created the world. He had Paul and his his life, his calling in life in mind, and so too. And we want to be sure to give God credit for all of these things. So if we keep these things in mind, that he is the divine creator, he is the divine poetes, poetes we are his uh, poem, poema, which is his, his literary work. He's written every detail of our story, so he's not only written He's not only created us in our mother's wombs, he's also written our full story and ordained it before the foundation of the world. We need to acknowledge that. We would understand our God better and find more comfort and peace of mind were we to embrace that important truth of the scriptures. So God sovereignly creates. And secondly, Paul's conversion is what we'll, we left off with last week and we'll pick up again this morning, verse 6 through 11, where God sovereignly Elects. So he not only sovereignly creates, he calls. At some point in your history, he will call you to himself if you belong to him. And you will come to Christ and respond to an irresistible appeal to you to come to the cross of Jesus Christ and be reconciled. And after that, we'll look, I hope to get to point three, which is Paul's contact in verse uh, 12 to 16, where God sovereignly, we see God sovereignly connecting. He's sovereignly connects through the intersection that Paul has, that God appoints with a man named Ananias. And there's so much to mine out of this chapter, out of this first defense, that I believe is very important for us uh, to take note of as we, as we go along this morning. But we'll begin with a reading. I want to read Paul's conversion. We've already looked at verse 1 through 5 where he's identifying with the crowd that he's speaking to. He's making that very close identification with them by finding things in common with them when he says, I am a Jew. He's speaking to them in their vernacular. He's speaking to them in the Aramaic. The Hebrew language at the time was Aramaic. He's speaking in Aramaic. The Romans are already impressed because he addressed them in polished, high-level Greek. So he's getting everyone's not only attention, but respect. And then, of course, he, he goes through where he's from, who he studied under Gamaliel. All of these things that 
ingratiates him to the people. That's your strategy point. As you're thinking about your evangel, your opportunity to do it, finding points of commonality that will keep them from, well, we would say today, I guess, canceling you, yeah? Instead, thinking highly of, well, this, he, he knows or she knows because they've been where I've been and they understand things the way I do. I can't look at them perhaps as I wanted to when I compartmentalize them in a very small compartment as, oh, that's just a Christian. And uh, they, it, you're not so easily dismissed that way. So in verse 6 to 11, we see Paul's conversion. Let's read that together. This is God's sovereign election of those that he appoints to fulfill his plan and his will. Verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Let's pray. Father, this is a powerful conversion account. It's powerful indeed. These were special times as you were founding the church, your church, the bride of your son, Jesus Christ. But there's so much, Lord, that remains for us today for our benefit as if we would be a discerning people if we would be a people who have thought through a strategy and how to appeal to those that you've allowed us to connect with help us to learn help us to have ears to hear this morning help us to know that you've put these things in your eternal record that your gospel will continue to proliferate because mankind is lost They need the help. They need the hope of the gospel. And so may your glory shine. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, you can find the first account of Paul's conversion in chapter 9. In verse 3 to 8, we can kind of see sort of some similarities there. We see him on his way to Damascus. In chapter 9, we see a light from heaven flashing around him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. He's using a couple of different points in the way that he is telling the conversion story to his fellow Jews now. He mentions in our account, verse 6, that it's a great light from heaven. And he also allows Jesus to identify himself as Jesus of Nazareth. Not the identification he gave himself in the first account, or at least Luke recorded. The physician Luke, of course, this is his record. He wrote the historical record on the founding of the church. 
He's Paul's constant companion. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He's a fastidious note-taker. He's a very careful historian. He's just the right person in God's sovereign uh, calling to be writing not only his gospel, what, but what is the Acts of the Apostles, or otherwise is referred to as Luke Part 2. It's a continuation of his gospel. As now we see Christ is risen and we see the advent of his Holy Spirit manifested in all of the people and we see a lot of exciting things happen. And that's where we've been for quite some time as we've gone through this powerful book. But it is a historical book. We remind ourselves regularly of that fact. That's its genre. And if we're going to have a uh, proper hermeneutical approach to the interpretation of Scripture, we want to remember that this isn't a book that is necessarily uh, prescriptive. It is descriptive. It's describing a special time as the church was planted. But there is certainly, make no mistake, plenty for us to glean from this account from chapter 1 through chapter 28 as we go through it. The telling of the men that are on the road with him, as you juxtapose chapter 9 telling with our chapter, with our passage here in 6 to 11, the men were traveling with him in chapter 9, stood speechless, hearing the voice, but, not, but seeing no one. And now those who were with me, verse 9 of our text, saw the light but did not understand the voice. So very similar this great light in our passage, not just a light as he mentions in chapter 9, but a great light catches your attention. So the Jews, he's talking, remember your audience as you should remember yours as you go through life sharing the gospel. Remember your audience to whom you are speaking. They would associate the presence of God with a great light. It would have been absolutely understandable and acceptable to them. So all of these things that Paul chooses to do and to say to particular audiences lend themselves to legitimacy of his account so that they will believe that's your agenda. That's your goal. You want them to understand and to, to believe. And so this great light in uh, Psalm Psalms 4, verse 6, 44, verse 3, 89, 15. It says, it's where the expression, the light of your face is used. So God is recognized in that Shekinah glory. It is a, a light, as he says it, when he's telling his account, he's making his defense to King Agrippa in chapter 26, verse 13. It's this Shekinah glory of God is actually, he says there, when we get there, brighter than the sun. It's a brightness that is brighter than the sun. There's a lot of symbolism with the sun and with brightness and all of those images that we see throughout scripture they have significance but before we go much further with that i want to draw your attention to paul's second question as i mentioned last time as we were closing the question who are you lord that's you and i answering the question about the one that's being spoken of by the person that's giving you the gospel you're to answer that question 
when a friend, a relative says, who are, gets, starts talking about Jesus Christ and your need for him, you should be asking in your mind, because he is quite literally asking of you, who do you say that I am? Which is also, of course, in Matthew 16. Most important question in all of human history, it always will be until he comes back. Who do you say that I am? But once that is settled, I am, and in our passage, he says, Jesus of Nazareth is how he answers it. Paul makes it clear to his audience that this is the Jesus of Nazareth, the one that was crucified. It's followed by the question, what shall I do? That's the question that often gets dropped off sometimes in the new believer's life. Because we're so egocentric, our, our focus is naturally on the fact that, praise the Lord, I'm saved. And they run off before they stay and ask that second question. What would you have me do? And that's why we must focus on what the scripture has to say about the appointments of God. Because before the foundation of the world, you belong to him. You are his poema. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared when? Beforehand. He prepared those things that we are called to in life that bring about the good works as he would describe them, that you might walk in them. That's the rest of Ephesians 2.10, remember? We need to remember that. We need to remember the sovereignty of God and what we see here before us and ask that question, what would you have me do? Typically that question, even by Christians, sadly, can be asked in such a way that I have to see if this meets what I want to do, I, I, if this is convenient for me, if this is where I want to work or where I want to live, or, and, and how rare it might seem with some Christians that they're saying, Lord, what would you have me do? You've written this out for Paul from before time began. And it wasn't just Paul. He does that with everyone that he has appointed to salvation. You will be told, Jesus says, and in this telling, he uses this word. All that is appointed for you to do. Well, now we can see it by the Greek word tasso. You, these things have been appointed for you. See, life gets hard sometimes when we decide to do things according to the flesh. What are the desires of, of what things we want to do, where we want to live, how, whether or not we want to get married, whether we want to have children, or how we want to raise our children, or where we want to work, or how we want... That's how we are. These things are appointed to you if you care to understand what they are. This, of course, is in the perfect passive indicative. So in the perfect, this thing has been completed beforehand. It's just the actions haven't taken place yet. That's the tense of the verb. And it's passive in its voice. In other words, you're, you're not doing it. I'm not. Well, you're actually going to fulfill the work that God has appointed for you. That's how you live. And so therefore, for instance, in Galatians 5, you're called to walk by the Spirit so that he might fulfill his desire for you. And then some of those things are listed there. We refer to them as the fruit of the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. We want to know what it is that God has 
appointed for us. So this is also an indicative in the verb, which means that it is certain, it is realized. So that's what he's saying. These things were laid out for you before I even made the foundation of the world. I knew you. I knew who you are. And that's not just for the prophet Jeremiah and the apostle Paul, friends. That's for all of us. We all belong to him. We're all in the same family. How much comfort, how much joy, how much contentment might I have if I sought to walk in congruency with what I saw the Lord calling me to on a daily basis? Think about it. This word means to arrange in an orderly manner. This was arranged in an orderly manner by the God who created him. Remember, God sovereignly creates. As he's laying out his credentials, those are credentials that belong to whom? God. He gave them to them. He gave him the gifts, the talents, the abilities to be the the person that the apostle is. If we reckoned that more often, we would not boast as much. We would not be as arrogant as we can sometimes come across. They all belong to God. Now, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you what? Did not receive. And if you did receive it, why are you acting like it belongs to you? These things are all appointments for you. We fulfill those things. Did you ever run up against something that you thought was a really good thing to do for the Lord and the door slammed shut? And, and, and you were, you, you're bum-fuzzled. You were, your head was spinning and you're like, this, I, this had to be right. This, this being successful, this, this opportunity, it just dried up on the vine. It just evaporated before my eyes. Would we remember this principle that's clearly declared in Scripture? We would rest, wouldn't we? We would rest in knowing that this isn't part of my appointment. I'm going to seek the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm going to love and adore me, his, Him as much as I have capacity to. And I'm going to seek to walk by the Spirit. And then I'll see what He unfolds. And what He unfolds is part of His divine plan. It is part of providence. It's what He's called me to. And it includes the unsuccessful things. It includes the ill health we're, that's why we are so grieved over the prosperity movement in the body of Christ. It says if you had great faith, that's all it takes. There's the formula, and then your life will prosper. That is a damnable doctrine. It's not an acceptable one. It denies the sovereignty of God across the board. It makes me sovereign in my life. If I do these things then I will have other earthbound things as we define prosperity. Terrible. He will not share his glory with anybody. This is some, something determined. One writer said, the clause signifies that Jesus has planned a career of service for Paul. The tense of the Greek verb indicates that the arrangements had been made in the past but were put in, into effect, that's the perfect tense, made in the past and certain. They're indicative form as well. They're, they're certain in the indicative mood. 
It's going to happen, but that also includes that's not going to happen. You're going to try to make that happen, and it's not going to. Saul, Saul, why, why are you persecuting me? Isn't it hard to be kicking against the goads? Do you want to live your life that way? You don't need to as a Christian. You really don't. There's a way to be happy and contented. Paul had to learn contentment, yeah? Philippians 4, remember? Whether in, in what is it? And plenty and what? And want. So in other words, lack or whether he's doing well, right? He had to learn it. It's something to be learned. That's what we're trying to do right now, right? Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to be contented in the plan that you've written before the foundation of the world. How intimate is that? How loving is that? How caring and kind is that? That he would allow me to be any part of his plan because I know what I deserve. I know how wicked I am. I know what a great sinner I am. It's when we begin to have expectations that we get ourselves in trouble. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 1. This, is, this, is, this helps really unpack this whole point. Galatians 1, 13 to 17. Now listen to this. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. It's essentially what he wants them to know in our argument right now in chapter 22, right, with his audience. You know about my former life of Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. You remember me? I'm as zealous as you are, as he said to them. I'm a zealous believer as all of you are today, he said in our last passage. That's part of his credentials. That's part of his credibility with them. Except he would write later on to the Romans. He said, yes, they have a zeal, but what? It's not according to knowledge. The knowledge is of what? Of whom? Of Christ. That this is the Messiah that he's come. And And I love them and I would have them recognize that they don't see him. They will not see him. Verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. This would be a good argument. And this is the argument he's making. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, there it is, verse 15, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that, so now we have a purpose clause. Here's why he did that. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That word will come up in our passage in chapter 22, but not yet. But when it does, that's our final point. Point five, Paul's conflict, right? You said that. That word. You mean the nations? Put that way, we see it all the way through the Old Testament. You should have recognized it from all of the prophets. Why are you so angry about that? You carry the truth of, of Yahweh. You are Yahweh's chosen people, Israel. You are supposed to be the ones appointed to share the gospel. See how well their life would have gone had they recognized that calling and recognized Messiah when he came? What's useful there for me? A lot. Remember, theology left in the abstract is useless. It only panders to your pride. Every bit of biblical theology needs to be applied. He was pleased. Verse 16 of Galatians 1, 
verse 16, was pleased to reveal his son to me. He did it. When we're dead and blind, we're dead and blind. How dead is dead? Well, you can find out. Go to the hospital, go down to the morgue, pull out all the drawers of the dead bodies and start preaching your heart out. Let me know how many rise up and say, where do I sign up? He revealed him to me. In order that purpose, I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. I learned from the master himself out in the Nabataean wilderness. You can't find a crack in his reasoning. You can't find a handle to say, aha, because that's what we look for, isn't it? So here's a statement for us. True conversion always results in a desire to know how the Lord who saved you has called you to live. So I find out it's not all just about me. Wonderful me. The Lord just loved me so much that he saved me. And now I can go on living the way I want to. They all asked, what should we do? The sincere ones. The insincere ones were driven off, at least by, the, by John the Baptist, right? Luke chapter 3, verse 7. So John the Baptist, the recalcitrant, arrogant religionist showed up to be baptized. Well, we can go do that. They show up. Hearts dead, filled with dead men's bones, their hearts were. And they show up to be baptized. He says, you brood of vipers. If I used language like that, I'd be in more in trouble than I'm already in. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with what he called you to. Bear fruit in keeping with the person you're supposed to be. He gave his son's life for you. Live in him. Pursue him. Follow him. That's what following him is. It's living according to the life that he's called me to. That's all Paul's doing. That's why he could go to Jerusalem, even though Christians, his companions were saying, don't go there. Don't go there. He knew what his calling was. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. He had the collection to take and bring. He even did the Nazarite vow with the four men, paid their vow with them at the temple, all those things. I mean, he was... He was yielding to the plan and the purpose and the will of God. In verse 10 to 14 with Luke chapter 3 with John the Baptist. Now listen to the contrast. Here's how the crowds and the people that were sincerely wanting to be baptized, the people that were sincere about recognizing their need for Christ and recognizing Jesus being that Christ. Verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. You live in a way that's not so protecting yourself, providing for yourself. You, you help people that need help. That's the crowd. There's another group of people. Verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, teacher, what shall we do? How often, how common is it that we ask that question in baptism? 
We're up out of the water. We're ready to share a meal, aren't we? It's fantastic. We're saved and we're baptized. That's it. Now we go home and we do what we want to. (laughs) We go wherever we want to. Our life starts getting jammed up at certain intersections. We start getting confounded and confused. Things start happening to us, and that's running us, running into the providence of God and what he has actually called us to. So, tax collectors asking, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. How about that for a start? Right? Another category, one more category here of sincere believers who are there to be baptizing, asking rather the right question. Soldiers asked him, and we, what shall we, what, do? You're saved by grace through faith, clearly. If you say with your mouth, And believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ. You will be saved. You will. You don't have to do anything else to be saved. Just believe. But it always, in the truly converted, generates that question. The Pharisees showing up to be baptized had no plan, no no intention of changing their life. Who is this Jesus who says he does, he, he has, all he has is a rock to lay his head on? He doesn't have anything. You think I want that kind of a life? No, I'm, I'm about me. I'm going to live the way I want to. What would you have me do? In his account to Agrippa in 26, again, when we get there, 19 to 20, therefore, O Agrippa, I was not disobedient. He's, he's careful to proclaim, I'm, I'm following what he called me to do, the plan that he's had for me, where he calls, I walk, I go. It doesn't matter that my life was in jeopardy. It doesn't matter how I'm treated. I go and I follow him. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn. That spawns the what should I do question from a newly converted believer. Repent of your former life is in the negative, right? These are things, these are ways I'm not going to live anymore. What are they for you? What are they for me? And turn. Their idea of repentance, of true conversion, always included the idea of turning away from something but toward something else, toward someone else, toward living according to the God who created you. What would you have me do, Lord? Paul's contact, verse 12 through 16. God sovereignly connects He sent Ananias, didn't he? And we have that in in an eternal record in the scripture. And this was something that actually quite literally took place in, in time. So this literally happened. But these are given to us so that we understand he's still in the business 
of intersections. He's still in the business of connecting you with different people for his purpose. But are we seeking what his purpose is? That's the point. God sovereignly connects. Verse 12, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. Notice what he's doing. Notice what he's doing there in verse 12. Do you see how he's putting it in a way? He's introducing this, this new character by describing him as devout, according to the law, well spoken of by whom? The Jews. He's always lending legitimacy to his apologetic, knowing his audience. So they're ready to understand who this Ananias is. In chapter 9, 10 to 11 is where we have his uh, being shown, where he shows up. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Verse 13 in our text, Ananias came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. Brother Saul, receive your sight. This was significant to the Jews as well because they would all associate uh, having blindness removed with the coming of Messiah. It's interesting, isn't it? Given how many people Jesus gave sight to that were blind, they just glazed over it. They didn't pay any attention. They didn't care to. So... These are intentional things that Paul is sharing. He doesn't tell the whole story of Ananias. He doesn't intend to. It won't help his defense. This does. Things that they recognize according what, to what he assumes and knows is their understanding of the coming of Messiah. Isaiah 35, 4 and 5, for instance, says this, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So that's the context, right? Salvation. He's coming. Immediately after that, in verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf Deaf unstopped. So the Pharisees and the other devout Jews would have been very familiar with that concept. So he tells them, this Ananias who is devout, who's well spoken of by all of the Jews, who is devout according to the law of Moses, he's careful to say those things. In characterizing him, he is the one who came to me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Bam, they know exactly that what's being communicated here is, you know, that gives legitimacy to the rest of whatever this man has to say to us because that's the expectation that we have. Psalm 146, 8. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind 
The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Isaiah 29, 18. In that day, the deaf sh shall hear the words of a book. <clears throat> and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. And then there's those Old Testament verses that not only combine, uh, that not only speak of the blind beginning to see, but also the light. Isaiah 42, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. I will be, a, he will come as a great light. So Paul shares that as part of his conversion testimony. A bright light, a great light was his language. <clears throat> it's not just that this was the noonday sun as he shares with Agrippa later. It's something greater than the noonday sun. They would have understood what that meant. A light. A light for the Gentiles. A light for the nations. They know this verse. Did they forget about it? <clears throat> Psalm 36, verse 9, for, you, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In the light of Christ, of the Christ, of the Messiah, when he comes, we're able to see light, both as a metaphor for truth and as the phobos that it is, the particles of life that we see and understand as we acknowledge and apprehend truth. In your light do we see light. He's coming as light, a great light, and then the blind shall see. Paul struck blind, but so that he could, there could be that moment where a man could literally demonstrate what would be very symbolic of the coming of Messiah. Saul received your, he didn't, did he want to go and do that, Ananias? No. In the, in the nine, chapter 9 telling, he says, Lord, we know about this man. He's destroying the church. See, Ananias doesn't get it at that point, but what does he do? He submits to the obedience of God and what he's called to do. And he goes and does it. And now Paul is able to retell that. He's got their attention with this story. The great light. Saul, receive your sight. Why else is that in there? This, these are symbols they would have been <clears throat> very familiar with. I love Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Through three, listen. This is scripture they had. This is scripture that the first century Jews had. This, these are their extant scriptures. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and a thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. These were truths that they knew from their respected prophet. So we also see in 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God said, so now we're in the New Testament, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, quoting their scriptures, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Light shines from the face of God. We saw that earlier through the psalmist. The light of your face. He becomes real to us in our hearts spiritually. He's still doing it the same way, only not in physical means like he did back in the historical record. These are all symbols that we take forward to know what's happening to us, quite literally, spiritually inside us. The light has come. God is sovereign over his elected family. He brings his light. I remember it for me. Some of you might have been so young or you were raised in the faith that you don't really recall anything quite that dramatic. It was quite dramatic for me. At 33 years old, crying out to him in a moment of suicide attempt. And he shows up and his light shines so that when I'm exposed to those, here's the connect part, just like Ananias, when my brother, when I, we moved from New York City out to the Los Angeles area, he said, I want to take you somewhere. He took us to a church and he said, what do you think? Who is that? That's the Christ. That's the Christ. That, that's the one. That's the one I cried out to. I, don't, I didn't know his name. I didn't know what he looked like. He revealed himself to me. It is impossible for you to talk someone into it if he's not determined to shine the light of the glory of the face of Jesus Christ in his mind, in his heart. That's how he's doing it now. And he does it through us. We are the means of allowing the Shekinah light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to show up in the heart and mind of a person. No matter how much convincing we think we're effective with, he has to do that. I've seen some very, very capable, effective gospel ministers who absolutely had no impact on certain people. The mistake would be if we think that we should be the ones. He's shown up. People that are dead and blind need to see him. And he's pleased to use the means of you caring, loving them, and speaking. Speak. Tell them who he is. You can't determine outcomes, but you certainly are called to this. Tell them. Did he save you? Do you know him? Why wouldn't you tell others who are dying? What if my brother hadn't told me? He works through his word. That's how he's pleased to do it. He works through the power of his Holy Spirit to wipe away the scales, to put the paddles on that dead heart and poof, 
bring it to life so that there's this explosion of light and they can see things in full spectra color. I see now. I once was blind, but now I see. It's nothing short of amazing grace, isn't it? Jesus, of course, was frequently healing the physically blind. Receiving physical sight from Jesus was a direct result of their spiritual faith. I was mentioning that in the first hour this morning where it applied. Receiving physical sight from Jesus was always a direct result to their spiritual faith. Why would it be that combination? Receiving physical sight for a spiritual belief so that they could visibly see. So we have on record what was symbolic. That is, that when the Christ comes, he has the power to let, to, to give sight to the blind, to give hearing to the deaf. Matthew 9, 27 to 29. And Jesus Passed on from there, and two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Have you cried that out? Did you hear our brother reading the psalm this morning? Did you cry out to him? Did you? Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you what? Do you believe that I am able to do this? You see the crossover from the physical? You, do you believe that I can take the physical blindness and make you get, have sight? If you believe that, that's a spiritual matter. You know who I am. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said, yes, Lord. There it is. There's the answer. You can do this, Lord. You can save my life. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. According to faith. I thought it was according to his sort of mental medical powers to make them physically see. No, it's their faith has made them whole. Their faith, because they believe they're made whole. Does that mean that every physical blind believer will regain their sight? Oh, the answer is not no. I know what you're thinking. Eventually it will be, right? Yes, praise the Lord. The lame will walk. They'll dance. They'll shout. The ones who couldn't hear can hear. They'll hear hear the fullness of the sounds of our wonderful creator and his glorious truth as he reveals himself to us. I can't wait to hear the rest. He's given me plenty for now in this life. But all is not necessarily healed here. But what Christ did on the cross made the promise that eventually all will be healed. And they believed it. And so they were given their sight. Matthew eleven two 2-5. Now when John the Baptist heard in prison, remember that? He's locked up in prison and he heard about some of the things Christ was doing and he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Uh, he was convinced of it in the beginning. Remember, John the Baptist was, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And all that grand, noble truth was pouring out. And he didn't fear anybody. You know, you brood of vipers. I mean, what happened to him now? 
that original perception of who Messiah would be and what he came to do was confounded by them. They thought that he was going to conquer the Romans. They thought there was some, something that John the Baptist obviously doesn't understand by the time he got locked up. So just ask him, will you? He's telling his followers, go and ask him if he's the one or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus answered this way, listen, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Oh yeah, that's the Messiah. He's here. That's him. Proof done. Settled. He doesn't need to be here continually doing that physically anymore. He doesn't, we don't need a physical appearance. We have everything that we need right here in the historical record in his word. Luke 4, 16 to 22. And he came to Nazareth where he was, had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Listen to this. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. (laughs) Wow. This is Jesus standing in the synagogue. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's reading from the, the Old Testament prophet and recovering of the sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. (laughs) And the eyes of all in the synagogues were fixed on him. I should say so. And he began to say to them, Today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. If this doesn't pull it all together for you, he hasn't allowed you to see yet. I, the one who am reading, he could have said, have fulfilled all this prophecy. You dead and blind Pharisees, you religionists, You search the scriptures because you think that in the scriptures, in your jots and tittles, in all of your commandments, that they will give you eternal life. And it is they that speak of whom? Of me. If we come to this book, we don't come to it for the details, for picking apart and parsing, for making my list of do's and don'ts, we come to see the most glorious, resplendent profile of the living Messiah emerge off the pages of Scripture. If that hasn't happened for you, I implore you to beg God, even in this hour, that he would reveal Jesus Christ to you. There's no mistaking it. If you're thinking, well, I'm not sure, then that's you. Ladies are going to go through 1 John. 1 John was written that you might what? No. What does that imply? That you can know. I can't wait 
that the ladies go through. Not to grumble about how many questions there are. Not to pick apart this and that. To look for him. To be, don't you want men, don't you want your wives to be completely contented in having met with, seen, and know intimately the Messiah, Jesus Christ? Yes. That's why I'm so excited. In Acts 26, when he's speaking to Agrippa, the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, Jesus said, to open their eyes, he's retelling his account there, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Turn, turn before it's too late. Turn away, turn to him that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Sanctified by faith. Just believe. If you hear him today, harden not your heart as they did in the wilderness. Respond. Respond by saying, Yes, Lord, I see. I believe. I believe. Verse 14, and he said, the God of our fathers, this is Ananias, back to Ananias speaking to then Saul in Paul's recount. The God of our fathers, Ananias said, appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. Totally. Old Testament prophetic. That's exactly what they should expect to hear when Messiah comes. Appointed you to know his will. Listen to what Paul wrote in Galatians 1, 15 to 16. Galatians 1, 15 to 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born. Paul gets it who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Now we understand this. He did it. In order that I might preach him to the Gentiles. There it is. He understands the whole thing. That's how, and that explains things, doesn't it? As we were going through Acts, why is Paul continuing to put himself in situations where his life is in jeopardy? How quick would we give up on somebody who treated us that way? Right? Kistemacher said, According, Accordingly, Paul recognized that in his life, God was working out his plan to know his will. That's what my life is all about. Sure, enjoy your life, but remember, you belong to another. You, you're, you're to love him so much you can't, you, you, you're drawn to him and you want to follow him. And that's how you follow him, by living the life he's called you to. Seeking him when you have decisions to make and learning what his word has to say as it becomes the most important navigating instrument of your life, lest you wander and become shipwrecked and wonder what happened. I thought I understood. He says, to see the righteous one. That's how he has Ananias saying it in this account. To see the righteous one. 
They totally understand that the Messiah, according to the prophets in the Old Testament, were, he was referred to as the righteous one. That's why it's in capital letters there, righteous one. And to see him, you have to be able to see him. This was his appointment for you. Isaiah 53, 11, for instance. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That, my friends, is the gospel. They're giving the gospel, the audience of Paul. They're hearing the gospel He's giving them the gospel in a most strategic, wise way in the context of his audience. Note that. So important for us. Verse 15, For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. That's why they put so much stock in these things I've seen, these things I've heard, because that's what the Messiah, when he comes, will allow. He's here. Remember his triumphal entry into Jerusalem? Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is him. Throw down your coats. Throw down the palm fronds so that his donkey has a a smooth place to walk because that, that is our Messiah. That's the king, I tell you. He is the one who will take away the sins of the world. No wonder John the Baptist was so jazzed. This is the Lamb of God who has come after millennia. He is here. We see him. What a privilege. You will be my witness for everyone, for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. For Paul then proclaiming the resurrected Jesus to all men everywhere became the equivalent of doing God's will. We have God's will now revealed. We have all of the will that he wants to reveal to us in our hands. That's why we are a Bible church. That's why our third purpose is the supremacy of the very scriptures that he's given to us that we might see and believe, that we might hear from him and obey, that we might follow him in submissive obedience. Believe that you might know. If you don't believe, you will not know. Verse 16, and we're done. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. This is Paul's clarion gospel. From a divinely appointed contact that God brought his way, named Ananias. The day you sit under the hearing of his word, who do you say? That he is. If you have answered, it is the Christ who takes away my sins that I might have eternal life, you have responded correctly. But please, oh please, follow up with the second question What would you have me to do? 
that you might glorify him in your life. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this testimony from the great apostle that we might have it today in our hearing. Lord, forgive us in our neglect of that all-important second question. Lord, what would you have us to do? May we be a people who pick up and read, a people who discern your will as revealed in the scriptures, that we may do that, that you would be glorified. For we pray in the Messiah's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.